Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're continuing our reading of Women, Race, and Class by Angela White Davis. We have a chapter this week on black and working class women getting involved in the suffrage movement and the difference they made and the obstacles they faced trying to do so. Let's get started. Chapter 9. Working Women, Black Women, and the History of the Suffrage Movement. In January 1868, when Susan B. Anthony published the first issue of Revolution, Working Women, whose ranks in the labor force had recently expanded, had begun to defend their rights conspicuously. During the Civil War, more white women than ever had gone to work outside their homes. In 1870, while 70% of women workers were domestics, one-fourth of all non-farm workers in general were female. Footnote 1. Within the garment industry, they had already become the majority. At this time, the labor movement was a rapidly expanding economic force, comprising no less than 30 nationally organized unions. Footnote 2. Inside the labor movement, however, the influence of male supremacy was so powerful that only the cigar makers and printers had opened their doors to women. But some women workers had attempted to organize themselves. During the Civil War and in its immediate aftermath, the sewing women constituted the largest group of women working outside their homes. When they began to organize, the spirit of unionization spread from New York to Boston and Philadelphia, and to all the major cities where the garment industry flourished. When the National Labor Union was founded in 1866, its delegates were compelled to acknowledge the sewing women's efforts. At the initiative of William Silvus, the convention resolved to support not only the daughters of toil in the land, footnote 3, as the sewing women were called, but the general unionization of women and their full equality with respect to wages. Footnote 4. When the National Labor Union reconvened in 1868, electing Silvis as their president, the presence of several women among the delegates, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, compelled the convention to pass stronger resolutions and generally treat the cause of working women's rights with greater seriousness than before. Women were welcomed at the 1869 founding convention of the National Colored Labor Union. As the black workers explained in one resolution, they did not want to commit, quote, the mistakes heretofore made by our white fellow citizens in omitting women, end quote, footnote 5. This black labor organization, created because of the exclusionary policies of white labor groups, proved by its practice to be more seriously committed to working women's rights than its white counterpart and predecessor. While the NLU had simply passed resolutions supporting women's equality, the NCLU actually elected a woman, Mary S. Casey, footnote 6, to serve on the organization's policy-making executive committee. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton did not record any acknowledgement of the black labor organization's anti-sexist accomplishments. They were probably too absorbed in the suffrage battle to take note of that important development. In the first issue of Anthony's Revolution, the newspaper financed by the racist Democrat George Francis Train, the overall message was that women should seek the ballot. Once the reality of women's suffrage was established, so the paper seemed to say, it would be the millennium for women, and the final triumph of morality for the nation as a whole. Quote, we shall show that the ballot will secure for women equal place and equal wages in the world of work. 
that it will open to her the schools, colleges, professions, and all the opportunities and advantages of life, that in her hand it will be a moral power to stay the tide of crime and misery on every side. End quote, footnote 7. Though its vision was often too narrowly focused on the ballot, revolution played an important role in the struggles of working women during the two years it was published. The demand for the eight-hour day was repeatedly raised within the pages of the paper, as was the anti-sexist slogan, Equal Pay for Equal Work. From 1868 to 1870, working women, especially in New York, could rely upon revolution to publicize their grievances as well as their strikes, their strategies, and their goals. Anthony's involvement in women's labor struggles of the post-war period was not restricted to journalistic solidarity. During the first year of her paper's publication, she and Stanton used the revolution's offices to organize printers into the Working Women's Association. Shortly thereafter, the national typographers became the second union to admit women, and in the revolution's offices, the Women's Typographical Union, Local Number 1, was established. Footnote 8. Thanks to Susan B. Anthony's initiative, a second Working Women's Association was later organized among the sewing women. Although Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and their colleagues on the paper made important contributions to the cause of working women, they never really accepted the principle of trade unionism. As they had been previously unwilling to concede that black liberation might claim momentary priority over their own interests as white women, they did not fully embrace the fundamental principles of unity and class solidarity, without which the labor movement would remain powerless. In the eyes of the suffragists, woman was the ultimate test. If the cause of woman could be furthered, it was not wrong for women to function as scabs when male workers in their trade were on strike. Susan B. Anthony was excluded from the 1869 convention of the National Labor Union because she had urged women printers to go to work as scabs. Footnote 9. In defending herself at this convention, Anthony proclaimed that, quote, Men have great wrongs in the world between the existence of labor and capital, but these wrongs as compared to the wrongs of women, in whose faces the doors of the trades and vocations are slammed shut, and are not as a grain of sand on the seashore. Footnote 10. Anthony's and Stanton's postures during this episode were astonishingly similar to the suffragists' anti-black position within the Equal Rights Association. As Anthony and Stanton attacked black men when they realized that the ex-slaves might receive the vote before white women, so they lash out in a parallel fashion against the men of the working class. Stanton insisted that the exclusion from the NLU proved, quote, what the revolution has said again and again, that the worst enemies of woman suffrage will ever be the laboring classes of men. End quote. Footnote 11. Woman was the test. But not every woman seemed to qualify. Black women, of course, were virtually invisible within the protracted campaign for woman suffrage. As for white working class women, the suffrage leaders were probably impressed at first by the organizing efforts and militancy of their working class sisters. But as it turned out, the working women themselves did not enthusiastically embrace the cause of woman suffrage. Although Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton persuaded several female labor leaders to protest the disfranchisement of women, the masses of working women were far too concerned about their immediate problems – wages, hours, working conditions – 
to fight for a cause that seemed terribly abstract. According to Anthony, quote, The great distinct advantage possessed by the working men of this republic is that the son of the humblest citizen, black or white, has equal chances with the son of the richest in the land. End quote. Footnote 12. Susan B. Anthony would never have made such a statement if she had familiarized herself with the reality of working-class families. As working women knew all too well, their fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons who exercised the right to vote continued to be miserably exploited by their wealthy employers. Political equality did not open the door to economic equality. Woman wants bread, not the ballot. Footnote 13 was the title of a speech Susan B. Anthony frequently delivered as she sought to recruit more working women into the fight for suffrage. As the title indicates, she was critical of the working women's tendency to focus on their immediate needs, but they naturally sought tangible solutions to their immediate economic problems, and they were seldom moved by the suffragists' promise that the vote would permit them to become equal to their men, their exploited, suffering men. Even the members of the Working Women's Association, organized by Anthony in the offices of her newspaper, elected to refrain from fighting for suffrage. Quote, Mrs. Stanton was anxious to have a Working Women's Suffrage Association, explained the first vice president of the Working Women's Association. I was left to a vote and ruled out. The society at one time comprised over 100 working women, but as there was nothing practical done to ameliorate their condition, they gradually withdrew. End quote. Footnote 14. Early in her career as a women's rights leader, Susan B. Anthony concluded that the ballot contained the real secret of women's emancipation, and that sexism itself was far more impressive than class inequality and racism. In Anthony's eyes, quote, the most odious oligarchy ever established on the face of the globe, end quote 15, was the rule of men over women. Quote, an oligarchy of wealth, where the rich govern the poor, an oligarchy of learning, where the educated govern the ignorant, or even an oligarchy of race, where the Saxon rules the African, might be endured. But this oligarchy of sex, which makes father, brothers, husbands, sons, the oligarchs over the mother and sisters, the wife and daughters of every household, which ordains all men sovereigns, all women subjects, carries discord and rebellion into every home of the nation. End quote. Footnote 16. Anthony's staunchly feminist position was also a staunch reflection of bourgeois ideology, and it was probably because of the ideology's blinding powers that she failed to realize that working-class women and black women alike were fundamentally linked to their men by the class exploitation and racist oppression, which did not discriminate between the sexes. While their men's sexist behavior definitely needed to be challenged, the real enemy, their common enemy, was the boss, the capitalist, or whoever was responsible for the miserable wages and unbearable working conditions, and for racist and sexist discrimination on the job. Working women did not raise the banner of suffrage en masse until the early 20th century, when their own struggles forced special reasons for demanding the right to vote. When women struck the New York garment industry in the renowned Uprising of the 20,000 during the winter of 1909 to 1910, the ballot began to acquire a special relevance to working women's struggles. As women labor leaders began to argue, working women could use the vote to demand better wages and improved conditions on the job. Women's suffrage could serve as a powerful weapon of the class struggle. 
after the tragic fire at the New York Triangle Shirtwaist Company claimed the lives of 146 women, the need for legislation prohibiting the hazardous conditions of women's work became dramatically obvious. In other words, working women needed the ballot in order to guarantee their very survival. The Women's Trade Union League urged the creation of wage earners' suffrage leagues. A leading member of the New York Suffrage League, Leonora O'Reilly, developed a powerful working-class defense of women's right to vote. Aiming her argument at the anti-suffrage politicians, she also questioned the legitimacy of the prevailing cult of motherhood. Quote, You may tell us that our place is in the home. There are 8 million of us in these United States who must go out of it to earn our daily bread, and we come to tell you that while we are working in the mills, the mines, the factories, and the mercantile houses, we have not the protection that we should have. You have been making laws for us, and the laws you have made have not been good for us. Year after year, working women have gone to the legislature in every state and have tried to tell the story of their need. End quote. Footnote 17. Now, so Leonora O'Reilly and her working class sissies proclaimed, they were going to fight for the ballot, and indeed they would use it as a weapon to remove all those legislators from office whose loyalties were with big business. Working class women demanded their right to suffrage as an arm to assist them in the ongoing class struggle. This new perspective within the campaign for woman suffrage bore witness to the rising influence of the socialist movement. Indeed, Women socialists brought a new energy into the suffrage movement and defended the vision of struggle born of the experiences of their working-class sisters. Of the 8 million women in the labor force during the first decade of the 20th century, more than 2 million were black. As women who suffered the combined disabilities of sex, class, and race, they possessed a powerful argument for the right to vote. But racism ran so deep within the woman suffrage movement that the doors were never really opened to black women. The exclusionary policies of the NAWSA did not entirely deter black women from raising the demand for the vote. Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, and Mary McLeod Bethune were among the most well-known black suffragists. Margaret Murray Washington, who was a leading figure of the National Association of Colored Women, confessed that, quote, Personally, woman suffrage has never kept me awake at night. End quote. Footnote 18. This casual indifference may well have been a reaction to the racist stance of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, for Washington also argued that, quote, Colored women, quite as much as colored men, realize that if there is ever to be equal justice and fair play in the protection in the courts everywhere for all races, then there must be an equal chance for women as well as men to express their preference through their votes. End quote. Footnote 19. As Washington points out, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs established a suffrage department to impart to its members knowledge about governmental affairs, quote, so that women may be prepared to handle the vote intelligently and wisely, end quote, footnote 20. The entire black women's club movement was imbued with the spirit of woman suffrage, and despite the rejection they received from the NAWSA, they continued to defend women's right to vote. When the Black Northeastern Federation of Clubs applied for membership in the NAWSA as late as 1919, just one year before victory, the leadership's response was a repeat of Susan B. Anthony's rejection of black women suffragists a quarter century earlier. Informing the Federation that its application could not be considered, 
the NAWSA leader explained that, quote, If the news is flashed throughout the southern states at this most critical moment that the National American Association has just admitted an organization of 6,000 colored women, the enemies can cease from further effort. The defeat of the amendment will be assured. End quote. Footnote 21. Still, black women supported the battle for suffrage until the very end. Unlike their white sisters, black women suffragists enjoyed the support of many of their men. Just as a black man, Frederick Douglass, had been the most outstanding male advocate of women's equality during the 19th century, so W.E.B. Dubois emerged as the leading male advocate of women's suffrage in the 20th century. In a satirical article on the 1913 suffrage parade in Washington, Dubois described the white men who hurled jeers as well as physical blows, and over 100 people were injured, as the upholders of the glorious traditions of Anglo-Saxon manhood. Footnote 22. Quote, Wasn't it glorious? Does it not make you burn with shame to be a mere black man when such mighty deeds are done by the leaders of civilization? Does it not make you ashamed of your race? Does it not make you want to be white? End quote. Footnote 23. Concluding the article on a serious note, Dubois quotes one of the white women marchers who said that black men had been unanimously respectful. Of the thousands watching the parade, quote, not one of them was boisterous or rude. The difference between them and those insolent, bold white men was remarkable. End quote. Footnote 24. This parade, whose most sympathetic male spectators were black, was rigidly segregated by its white women organizers. They even instructed Ida B. Wells to leave the Illinois contingent and to march with the segregated black group, in deference to the white women from the South. Quote, the request was made publicly during the rehearsal of the Illinois contingent, and while Mrs. Barnett, Ida Wells, glanced about the room looking for support, the ladies debated the question of principle versus expediency, most of them evidently feeling that they must not prejudice Southerners against suffrage. End quote. Footnote 25. Ida B. Wells was not one to follow racist instructions, however, and, at parade time, she slipped into the Illinois section. As a male advocate of woman suffrage, W.E.B. Dubois was peerless among black and white men alike. His militancy, his eloquence, and the principled character of his numerous appeals caused many of his contemporaries to view him as the most outstanding male defender of women's political equality of his time. Dubois' appeals were impressive not only for their lucidity and persuasiveness, but also for their relative lack of male supremacist undertones. In his speeches and writings, he welcomed the expanding leadership roles played by black women, who, quote, are moving quietly but forcibly toward the intellectual leadership of the race. End quote. Footnote 26. While some men would have interpreted this rising power of women as a definite cause for alarm, W.E.B. Dubois argued that, on the contrary, this situation created a special urgency for extending the ballot to black women. Quote, the enfranchisement of these women will not be a mere doubling of our vote and voice in the nation, but will lead to a stronger and more normal political life. End quote. Footnote 27. In 1915, an article entitled Votes for Women, a Symposium by Leading Thinkers in Colored America, was published by Dubois in The Crisis. Footnote 28. 
It was the transcript of a forum, whose participants included judges, ministers, university professors, elected officials, church leaders, and educators. Charles W. Chestnut, Reverend Francis J. Grimke, Benjamin Brawley, and the Honorable Robert H. Terrell were some of the many male advocates of women's suffrage who spoke during this symposium. The women included Mary Church Terrell, Anna Jones, and Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin. Quote, the vast majority of the women who participated in the Forum on Women's Suffrage were affiliated with the National Association of Colored Women. In their statements, there were surprisingly few invocations of the popular argument among white suffragists that women's special nature, their domesticity, and their innate morality gave them a special claim to the vote. There was one glaring exception, however. Nanny H. Burroughs, educator and church leader, carried the womanly morality thesis so far as to imply the absolute superiority of black women over their men. Women needed the vote, Burroughs insisted, because their men had bartered and sold this valuable weapon. The Negro woman needs the ballot to get back, by the wise use of it, what the Negro man has lost by the misuse of it. She needs it to ransom her race. A comparison with the men of her race in moral issues is odious. She carries the burdens of the church and of the school, and bears a great deal more than her economic share in the home. End quote. Footnote 29. Of the dozen or so women participants, Burroughs alone assumed a position which rested on the convoluted argument that women were morally superior, implying, of course, that they were inferior to men in most other respects. Mary Church Terrell spoke on woman's suffrage and the 15th Amendment, Anna Jones on woman's suffrage and social reform, and Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin described her own historical experiences in the woman's suffrage campaign. Others focused their remarks on working women, education, children, and club life. In concluding her remarks on women and colored women, Mary Talbert summed up the admiration for black women expressed throughout the symposium. Quote, By her peculiar position, the colored woman has gained clear powers of observation and judgment, exactly the sort of powers which are today peculiarly necessary to the building of an ideal country. End quote. Footnote 30. Black women had been more than willing to contribute those clear powers of observation and judgment, toward the creation of a multiracial movement for women's political rights. But at every turn, they were betrayed, spurned, and rejected by the leaders of the lily-white woman suffrage movement. For suffragists and club women alike, black women were simply expendable entities when it came time to woo Southern support with a white complexion. As for the woman suffrage campaign, it appears that all those concessions to Southern women made very little difference in the end. When the votes on the 19th Amendment were tallied, the southern states were still lined up in the opposition camp, and in fact, almost managed to defeat the amendment. After the long-awaited victory of woman suffrage, black women in the south were violently prevented from exercising their newly acquired right. The eruption of Ku Klux Klan violence in places like Orange County, Florida, brought injury and death to black women and their children. In other places, they were more peacefully prohibited from exercising their new right. In Americas, Georgia, for instance, quote, more than 250 colored women went to the polls to vote, but were turned down where their ballots refused to be taken by the election manager. End quote. Footnote 31. In the ranks of the movement which had so fervently fought for the enfranchisement of women, there was hardly a cry of protest to be heard. And that concludes our reading for this week. One small point I kind of want to 
underline from this chapter uh, that Davis keeps coming back to now and then. She has mentioned a few times when someone will understand the oppression that another group is facing, and when people won't. And one distinguishing factor in this is knowing people who face this same oppression. One of the issues with the white women voters and their suffragist movement and the prejudices they fall prey to and the mistakes they make because of that is that they know their family is a white wealthy family. They don't suffer prejudices besides the fact that they know they and their female family members are suffering sexism. But they're not working class. They're not seeing poorly treated workers. If they're not black and they're not actually interacting with black people, they're not seeing the racism going on again and again, despite the fact that abolition has occurred. If you're working class, you've seen the men in your family still struggle even though they do have the vote. You've seen the different vectors of oppression that can happen to you, so you are not fully bought into the idea that this is the one way in which the world is unfair. There's a certain point of view from the affluent white women looking for the vote that they're correcting the one injustice. Because they definitely espouse racist views and an assertion that effectively people can do well if they work hard They believe in the overall order, they just think there's a minor correction to be done. (laughs) The other thing, (laughs) the other thing from this chapter I have to bring up, you don't even get anything from siding with the reactionaries. They almost lost the vote, and it was because of the southern states they spent all that time appeasing. It's such an illustration of why it is not worth trying to appeal to reactionaries, because If you're worried that this one thing will go too far for them, they want you to to be fully aligned with them. They want you to undo all kinds of progress. They want the idea of the, oh, the mother is very moral. They want the overly conservative idea that women are ultimately inferior, but they have this one moral good that means they should probably be allowed to vote. If they even think that much, maybe they don't think women should vote in the first place. (laughs) So if you spend all your energy going, well, we we know that they don't like black people, so we're gonna have to just fall in line on that. It's like, when you tell them you'll cave on that, what else could they get you to cave on? And that's going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find all sorts of other leftist podcasts there about books, video games, movies, anime, and there's even more podcasts if you go to the Patreon. I definitely recommend if you pay $1, you get The Great Gundam Project, which is a very fun journey through a massive anime franchise that is way more leftist politics to say than you would think. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading. <laughs>